0: I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Salah. Those are verses 11 to 15 of Psalm 77, which along with Psalm 79 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, September the 19th. 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing our look today at the book of Esther. I'm going to have to give you a little bit of background on it because we missed the day yesterday because I don't do a Sunday daily podcast, only a Sunday um, Sunday podcast. <laughs> and then we're going to be in Luke's gospel today, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, still in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, 1 to 11. So we save John, the rest of John's gospel, for a little later in the year. <clears throat> that will be, uh, you know, up through the crucifixion and all that. So uh, that comes later in the year. We don't, we don't cover it this time of year. So in the Esther passage today, what's happened yesterday, what happened in chapter 3 is essentially this. Haman had been promoted to the top royal official. He was right beside the king, or right below the king on the organizational chart. Nobody was higher than him, and so he he sort of demanded that people bow down and, and obey and worship him, more or less. Not worship exactly, but something like it. So everybody did, with one exception, right? The uncle of Esther, Mordecai, uh, and Mordecai refused to do it, and it infuriated Haman that this one man refused to bow down to him, and so he, he concocted a, uh, a plan over many months, and, th- and that plan was, was very simple. It was to go to the king, convince him that there was a group of people who were dispersed among his people all over his kingdom. So in all 127 provinces, these were scattered abroad throughout that whole region, and they Had a different king and followed different laws and refused to obey the laws of the kingdom. Now there's no evidence that they were refusing to obey the laws of the kingdom. You could see it kind of in Daniel and in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when, when they were instructed to not worship any other gods or to to bow and pray before an idol that Nebuchadnezzar had constructed, then they would not bow down to that. And so there was a, it was only in those kinds of issues, though, those issues that touched on religious matters, where there was a lack of obedience. So Haman suggested that that the best thing to do would be to eradicate these people from the entire kingdom. Sounds a little bit like, well, Hitler, to be honest with you. Um, and the best thing to do is to get rid of these people because they're going to cause problems forever and ever and ever. And they're never going to accept you as their leader, blah, blah, blah. And in fact, I, I want this so much, I'm willing to pay into the king's treasury 10,000 talents of silver, which is about 750,000 pounds of silver. So he said, I'm willing to pay that into the treasury. So he was obviously an incredibly wealthy man And, and in order to affect this. And so the king put out an edict that demanded that. Okay, so that's where we are. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed because of Mordecai, because of what Mordecai was doing. He was, he was mourning in sackcloth and ashes over this. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to show her, to attend her, and ordered her to go to Mordecai, ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Atak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So we have multiple things going on here. We've got Esther ordering this eunuch to go and speak to Mordecai. Mordecai then explains everything and then says that you explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg and plead on behalf of her people. So we have ordering and commanding, and then we have begging and pleading. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Now, in the past, remember, what's happened here with Esther is is, is that she was um, compliant she did whatever Mordecai told her to do, and she did whatever the eunuch, who was in charge of the prospective wives, exactly what he comm- he suggested that she do. So here, Mordecai would have had every reason in the world to believe that Esther was going to go ahead and do whatever he said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded, again, commanded, Him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I haven't been called to come into the king these thirty days. So over the last thirty days, she had not been called to come in and attend to the king and be in his presence, and she said, You can't go unbidden, you'll die. If you do, and remember, in well, you may not remember. In Nehemiah, we see the same thing. Nehemiah had never been sad in the presence of the king, and and the reason for that would be that everybody who comes into the presence of the king was intended to be happy. There were certain rules of etiquette that that had to be observed in order to come into the king's presence. It's still true in England and any place that has a king or a queen like that. So that that's what she's saying is is that I haven't had an I don't have an opportunity to do that unless he calls me to come in. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Esther told them to reply to Esther. Mordecai. Told them to reply to Esther. Don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than any other Jews. You're not safe just because you're in the palace, and just because they don't know that you're a Jew. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So he's sort of speaking prophetically and saying, if you don't do something, it's God's will. This is what he believes. Obviously, it's God's will that something will happen. That, that we'll be delivered. It's, it, God's, God's plan is not for the Jews to be destroyed in this way. And if you don't act, somebody else will. And you know what? Then God will come after you and your fam- father's house. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's quite possible the whole reason you're there right now is it so you can do this. So that's what he, how he leaves it with her. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast also, as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So the shoe's sort of on the other foot here. Um, Esther now has the the power in this relationship, and so she's now commanding him, but she's hearing what she should do. And so she's going to take three days and three nights and be all prayed up, fasted up, and get all the Jews to fast and pray on her behalf, and then she's going to go into the king and make the appeal. It's not going to go exactly how Mordecai and everybody else assumes it will go. Just a little heads up in the gospel today we're really beginning the the first two chapters of of Luke um, tell us about uh, the Annunciation by the angel to Mary of the uh, of her th- that she will become pregnant with God's child we also get um, Zechariah in the temple serving in the holy place and the Archangel appears to him and and so the the setting is there and and now we're and the birth of Jesus has already taken place because that all happened at Christmas. So, like we skipped through the end of John, now we skip through the beginning of Luke, and we start here. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, why does he give us all those details? It's so that you can triangulate and say, okay, I know exactly when that was. I know when the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar is. That's, that's not hard to calculate. Uh, and this was the... So John's given us all the historical references we need to be able to figure this out, in, in, in and Luke is, I'm sorry. And part of the reason he's doing it is to authenticate everything. He, he, Luke is trying to give um, a, a forensic account of everything, and so he's going to be precise, in certain ways. And one of the ways he's going to be precise is to to give us exactly the historical setting, and, and he's going to point to all the people who would have any kind of influence over this. And then it ends with this odd thing about during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And if you remember in the in, in the book of Acts, we've talked about this before, that um, Paul, when they bring him bring before the high priest, he, he makes a... Um, mm, um, a critical statement about the high priest, and then he slapped and, and then said, you know, how dare you speak this way to the high priest? And he said, I'm sorry, I really didn't know. Because it bounced back and forth between these men, Annas and Caiaphas, his two families essentially controlled the high priesthood over a long period of time. And so at any given year, if you're like Paul, who's no longer really sort of um, embedded in Judaism, then it would be hard to fig- to, to remember, you know, which one was which, it's a measure of how far Paul moved himself away from Judaism and he didn't bother to keep up anymore with who the uh, the high priest was and it's and Luke has given us here sort of some information to tell us you know when this was it was during that the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas so I'm not sure whether Luke knew <laughs> who was in this particular year but he did know who the caesar was he knew who the governor was and the tetrarch of galilee also the other tetrarchs and they, they were brothers herod philip and Lysanias were all brothers they were all family so all these people are our way of triangulating points in time and this is true for people who are not jews or christians and we presume that to be true of theophilus assuming that Theophilus is an actual person, because that's who both the gospel and the book of Acts are addressed to as this Theophilus. It means God lover or lover of God, however you want to say it. And so he's, he's, he's giving the, uh, this person sort of the, the temporal as well as the Jewish points of contact that you could triangulate the time. So the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So this is a prophecy of Isaiah, and, and what Luke is telling us is, is that John, John's work is in fulfillment of the prophecy that we just read from Isaiah. And that prophecy, what it, what it is, is it's, it's what would be done to prepare the way for the coming of a king. You, you would make the way as straight as possible and make it as flat as possible for them to come in. There would be no obstruction for the king to come into his kingdom. And that's exactly what John's doing. But John's doing it by way of preparing a people to greet him, him the king, not him John. <clears throat> but it's it, for instance, this was done in America, um, where we lived in Pawley's Island. The The main road, the main thoroughfare through there was Highway 17. But there was another road that ran parallel to 17 for a good bit of its distance as it crossed across the Waccamaw Neck, and and that road is called King's Highway, and that road was the straightest road that ran through that area so that when the king and then ultimately the president, uh, George Washington, could pass down that way in as straight a, a line as possible, and there were houses along the way that were reoriented because the road was was, quote, behind the house, and so you want to present your best face to the road, to the king. So what they did was that some houses there would have a, a double front entrance, one on each side of the house, and it's because when, the, when George Washington came, they wanted to be able to greet him in the front door, and the front door was on the other side of the, of, of the king's highway that was built, and so they built a new front on what what had been the backside of the house. And so that's exactly what this point is that, that that Isaiah has talked about. And John's job was to prepare a people fit to greet the king, the Messianic king. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized for him, I mean, I can't imagine ever looking at a crowd of people in my church and saying this, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping of repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, "We have Abraham as our father." For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, if you preach that sermon in in, in any church that I've ever been in, the bishop would come after you and say, "What in the world do you think you're doing?" You can't say those things to those people. No evangelism teacher would ever tell you to go out and say this. You know, Turner Byrne is not something that, that anybody wants to be caught preaching, right? Because, well, it just doesn't sound right, but it's true. <laughs> you know, you, but you don't typically look at the people and call them, you brood of vipers. The, and, and John's just saying, you know, you, if you can't just come and get baptized. There, there needs to be fruit in your life. We need to be able to see that you truly repented of those sins. And then he says this thing about, don't say to yourselves we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God's able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. It's the same thing God threatened to do with Moses, right? At the time of the uh, golden calf, he says, look, I'm going to start all over again. I'm just going to wipe them all out. We'll start all over again. They'll be your kids now. And he, he pleads with him and says no. And so um, John's saying, we need to see it in your life. You don't, you don't get in just because you have Abraham for your father. That's not good enough. God can do away with you. He wants a people. He wants a, a, a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Love your neighbor as yourself. But but put it into motion, put it into practice, make it real. <laughs> Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to them and they said to him, Teacher, what do we do? Yep, collect no more than you're authorized. Well, the see that that's what <laughs> The problem with um, Zacchaeus was is that he he said, hey, if I've cheated anybody, I'll I'll return it double Um, because, well, you know, we we can collect a whole lot more. My income can go up the more I assess things at. So, hey, there's no reason for me to be honest about it. I think that's worth a whole lot more than you're saying it is. And then, therefore, the excise tax on it is higher as well. Soldiers asked him then, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone's by threat or false accusation and be content with your wages. So what he's doing is speaking into people's lives and telling them very practical things they can do to, to actually live out their faith and to, to prove that to other people. And if you and, and essentially what he's saying is if you live this way, that'll be revolutionary. It'll get people's attention because normally people don't live the way that I just told you to live. If I have to tell you to do those things, then it, then it's countercultural. Well, guess what? Judaism and Christianity are countercultural, or, well, at least should be. In Acts, in that lesson in Acts 18, we have, after this, after Paul, you know, went to the Areopagus and talked to the people there and got some converts, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, who was the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So this is after, the, the, uh, the, after Nero fiddled while Rome burned, okay? so And the Jews got blamed. And he went to see them, Paul did, went to see Priscilla and Aquila. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he's where's he going? He's going to the synagogue in Corinth. That's where, exactly where he's going. Now, Corinth was an idol-making factory. It, it was a place of, of deep idolatry. And so there, there were almost everything could be worshipped in Corinth. But So he's going to the synagogue every Sabbath to try and persuade Jews and Greeks. But since he's also working with them, then, then you can guess that Paul, there's no way in the world, Paul is not speaking about Jesus while he's at work. So when Timothy and Silas arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus, testifying to the Jews. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. So what does that mean about this, you know, your blood be on your own heads? I'm innocent. Well, remember that in Ezekiel, for instance— Ezekiel is told, and so is Isaiah, actually, but, but not as clearly, I don't think, that they're both told one thing. Nobody's going to listen to you, that you but, but your job is to go and talk anyway. Your, your job is to go and tell them they need to repent that God is angry. Nobody's going to hear you. It, Jeremiah, same deal. None of this is going to go well for you. But with Ezekiel, what he's told specifically is, if I send you to somebody and you don't go and they die in your sins. They, in their sins you're going to die too for their sins because you failed to go and tell them the truth. I, I don't God never says this to us, but we should feel that. With our non-Christian friends, we need to feel the reality of that. That if somebody dies in their sins because hell is real, judgment is real, hell is real, if somebody dies in their sins and ends up in hell and and we had an opportunity, then we should feel great grief. Incredible grief over the fact that we did not share the gospel with somebody because we don't know how God would have dealt with that person. Now, ultimately, whether they they believe it or not, is completely up to them. It's not up to you. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict a person of sin. It's your job to speak the truth in love. (laughs) So here, that's what Paul's saying. He says, look, I did my job. I told you. I warned you. So it's on you, not me, because I did my job. And he left there and went to the house of a man called Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. So he would have been a proselyte. He would, he would not have been a Jew. His house was next door to the synagogue. So instead of going to the synagogue, now he just goes next door to Titius Justice's house. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid. But go on speaking and don't be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul stays 18 months there because God said, I've got a bunch of people here. There's a great harvest ready here in Corinth uh, for you if you'll you'll be faithful and do this, and you don't have anything to worry about. I'm not going to let anybody touch you to harm you. So Paul stayed. He believed the Lord and he stayed in that place. And it's always the case that we need to constantly be listening to the Lord, to trust in him, to believe in him, and to share the truth with anybody who comes into our path, just like John did, just like Paul did, and need to speak the truth in love. But we always need to be speaking the truth. That's the reason, Christians, we should always be talking about the Lord. I'm not claiming to be really good at that. I'm saying to you, this is what we have to be better at, starting right here with John. Um, in the uh, In that... Esther lesson, what we see is a transition in this young woman from being uh, sort of under authority for men to now beginning to come under the authority of God.